Now, this week I've been thinking about comfort. Where is it that we turn first for our comfort? <laughs> Sometimes, yes, chocolate. <laughs> Absolutely. These are all good answers. I think sometimes when we look for comfort, uh, it's easy for us, if we're honest, to turn first to things of this world. Yesterday, Carolyn went out shopping. She was taking care of some shopping that our family needed done. I'm so thankful that she does that. <laughs> I'm not a big shopper. Uh, while she was out shopping, me and the boys were out for a hike in a field behind the neighborhood. And, and I had seen this television back there in the field a number of times and I, I don't know if you can tell in the picture, it's probably a 19, early 1990s Panasonic, about yay wide. <laughs> about two feet wide. <laughs> but in this picture, the, the glass is smashed in, and it's just sitting out in the middle of an abandoned field. And, and I took the boys out there, and I... I wanted to use it as a teaching moment for him. I told him, you guys, probably 15 or 20 years ago, uh, somebody probably spent, I don't know, three or 400 bucks on this thing. And maybe when they went to get it, they were even thinking, man, this will make me happy. <laughs> this will make me happy. And now look at it, guys. 15, 20 years later, it's laying out in the middle of a field with the screen smashed in. I said, what do you guys learn from this? My oldest said, don't, don't put your hope in in things of this world. They don't last. I said, that's exactly it. But we do, don't we, sometimes, if we're honest. We take, look, take our needs for comfort to things of this world, whether it's our, our favorite TV show, sports for me. Um, maybe it's money. Maybe it's likes on a Facebook post that, that you go to for comfort. Things of this world. And sometimes those bring a temporary sense of comfort or, or fulfillment. But I think something happens as the world starts to get darker, whether on a global scale or in our own lives, when we encounter suffering or the possibility of suffering in our lives, we realize more and more that things of this world just won't do it. We start looking for something deeper than comfort. We start looking for something that the Bible calls consolation. Now, I don't know what you think of when you think of the word consolation. You think of game shows, it's not necessarily a great thing. Like we watch Family Feud all the time and Steve Harvey comes out and those, those people at the end, they, they got to get 200 points. And if they do, they get $20,000. You know, everybody says it different. What are you here for? $20,000! <laughs> but if they don't get the 200 points, they get the consolation prize. That's $5 for every point they got. It's... It pales in comparison to the $20,000. Or in sports, a, a consolation round is who, when you play to see who's third and fourth. You don't want to be in the consolation game. You want to be in the first place game. But in a biblical sense and in a bigger sense of the word, it's actually a really good thing. What consolation means is comfort that is received by a person after a loss or disappointment. It's that comfort. Uh, or it's the person or thing providing that comfort to a person who has suffered. If you've ever suffered, if you are suffering, you know the importance of consolation in your life. And I think as we look at our world, even over the past month, how things have escalated, there's a growing awareness 
that if it's not the suffering that I'm going through in my own life right now, the possibility of suffering in our personal lives and in our nation grows closer and closer every day. Whether it's ISIS and our poorest borders, or as people watch nervously the headlines about Ebola, there's a sense that we need some, some consolation. I, I got a text from a friend this week that said, I'm pretty troubled right now. I feel that a Nineveh moment is upon us. What's that person saying? He's feeling this sense that, wow, we have got to wake up and, and change our ways, change where we're turning for comfort, change what we're putting our trust in. There's a world in trouble and in need of God's intervention. It brings us that need for consolation. I felt it this week. Maybe you felt it as well. And what we want to look at in Luke chapter 2 this week is two people that were waiting for consolation then. A man named Simeon and a woman named Anna. They were waiting for consolation. We're going to look at their waiting and what we can learn from it. And then we're going to talk about what it looks like to wait for the consolation of Jesus today. I want you to dive into the chapter with me. The shepherds had left. They had gone out to tell people about Jesus. We're now Luke chapter 2, verse 21. It says, On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. As we unpack this verse and the ones that follow, I want to give you one main idea before we move to the next one. What we see in Jesus coming is that after centuries of Israel trying to be right with God by following his law without the power of the Holy Spirit, we learned that if we could not get to God, he would have to come to us. We could not get ourselves to God for the consolation we need. And it's not just true of Israel, it's true of all of us. Paul later says we all fall short of the glory of God. If we couldn't get to God, he'd have to come to us. So that's where we see this baby Jesus. And on the eighth, eighth day, his mother and father took him to be circumcised. Donald Gray Barnhouse says this was his first suffering on our behalf. <laughs> if you've ever witnessed this procedure, you say a hearty amen. Jesus became one of us. And what you see here is his parents following the law. Jesus, as we'll learn in a moment, came and became one of us, submitted himself to the law that we could not keep. So he was circumcised according to that law. There was more to that law. Verse 22, when the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, after a woman gave birth, she was unclean for a period and she would have to go to the temple. They're going to follow that law here. Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Now here's the third law. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. You know your Old Testament, you know the firstborn was always taken to the temple. And in most cases, the parents would pay a small amount of money to redeem that child back and keep him. On a rare occasion, as in the case of Samuel, they said, hey, God, you keep him here at the temple. But the, the thing here is right, right now, Mary and Joseph are giving five shekels to the temple to redeem or buy back and take home their son with them, which is amazing. Warren Wearsby pointed out, five shekels to redeem the one who would later redeem us with his blood. 
First Peter 1.18 says, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. They were also to offer a sacrifice in connection with this. In keeping, verse 24, with what is said in the law of the Lord. There's that word law again. A pair of doves or two young pigeons. Do you know what that means that Mary and Joseph would offer two birds in connection with this? It means that they lived in poverty. Yeah, if you had enough money, you were supposed to offer a lamb. If you were poor... You brought a pair of doves or two young pigeons. They couldn't afford a lamb, but they had the lamb of God. Beautiful picture. But what do we learn from this that Jesus came down to us because we couldn't get there? A couple things. As I mentioned earlier, he became one of us and put himself under the law that we could not fulfill. That's why he did this his whole life. He never once broke the law of God. He broke the traditions that the religious leaders attached to it. He never once violated his father's law. Galatians 4.4 4 says it this way, when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. He became one of us under the law. That should never stop blowing your mind. It's what sets apart our faith from everything else out there. Second, he fulfilled that law perfectly. Every jot and tittle. Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Where Adam and every human since him until Jesus Christ was born failed, he batted a thousand on our behalf. He set us free from the curse of the law. The curse of the law means because if you break it at one point, you're guilty of it all. That was upon every one of us. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He took our curse upon himself on that pole that we know as the cross. Two more points here. Obedience now comes from the Holy Spirit within us because we are grateful to be free. It's never to gain our freedom. We don't obey to gain our right standing with God because Jesus did that. We are free. Galatians 5.1 says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. There is an Amen. There is an enemy that would love to get us all walking out of here under a yoke of slavery. Paul says, don't go there. Jesus did it in your place. So I want to ask us a question after this first point. He came for us because we couldn't get to him for the consolation. Are you resting in what Jesus did? I hope so. Are you trying to get right with God on your own merit? Second thing we see here is that he didn't only come for Israel. He came to bring consolation to all nations. We're going to meet a man named Simeon. We always assume he was old because he says in here, now I'm ready to die. But it doesn't really tell us how old he was. He could have just been saying, hey, I'm ready now that this has happened. We don't know, but we do know a couple things about him. Verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon 
who was righteous and devout. That's the same things we were told about Zechariah and Elizabeth earlier on. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. You remember they're under the Roman Empire. There have been 400 years of silence. There's this sense of anticipation among a faithful few waiting for the Messiah. And the Holy Spirit was on him. This is key. Everything he becomes aware of in this passage, he's made aware of by the Holy Spirit, just as it is with you and I. Spiritual truth comes through our teacher, the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. And watch how the Spirit sets up this divine appointment. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God. Do you see that? You ever have a moment like that where God leads you to a moment where you need to be there for someone or you need to hear something from someone and the Holy Spirit puts the pieces together and boom, that's what's going on here. He brought Simeon right as Jesus' parents brought him in and this man praised God. He said, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace for my eyes have seen your salvation. What a beautiful thing to say about Jesus. He doesn't call him by his name Jesus. He just calls him your salvation. Your salvation. As John the Baptist said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I've seen him, this little baby, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And that's the verse I want to camp on here. There were many in Israel that only thought of the Messiah in terms of their country. Simeon and a few others realized that it wasn't just for Israel. It was for all the nations. That's why he says, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. It had always been this way. That was always God's plan. Genesis 12, 3, he told Abraham, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. What peoples? All peoples, because Jesus would come from Abraham's line. Psalm 98, verses 1 through 3 says, Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. Listen to this. The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to Israel All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God for all nations. We see it at the end of the book, Revelation 5, 9. They sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll, Lamb of God, and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. Good news for all. So I want to close this point by asking, do you live like the gospel is for all who will believe? We're just a small group of people like you, close to you, around you, same economic bracket as you. Do we have a global vision for what God wants to do? I pray we do. That's part of why we help support missionaries to the Philippines and to China. That's part of why some of you take short-term trips from time to time. We ought to have a global view. Do we have that? third point we see in this passage is that Jesus is who he is. 
Listen to this. Our belief or unbelief about him says more about us than it does about him. Listen to verse 33. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Imagine standing there with this little baby and hearing all this stuff about him. Just, we know Mary, at least, was probably a teenager. We don't know how old Joseph was. But just to hear that about your boy, your little baby, like, whoa. Then it says in verse 34, Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, listen to these words, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel. This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel. What's he saying? He's saying that based on your response, based on those people in Israel's response to Jesus, if they did not believe, they would fall. The word can literally mean collapse. If they would not believe in this Savior, or they can rise. The word can be translated resurrected if they believe. The idea here is a lot of times we come to Jesus and, and we think he's on trial with us. We want to stack up, we want to do a little court trial on Jesus and see if he really is who he says he is. And some of that's good. We want to evaluate, but really the big picture is we are on trial based on our response to him. C.S. Lewis wrote a little piece called God in the Dock. And when he was talking about dock, he's talking about in the English sense. The dock is a place where a criminal would sit at a court trial. Okay? Listen to what C.S. Lewis said about this. The ancient man approached God, or even the gods, as the accused person approaches his judge. You hear what he's saying? When they thought of God, they thought of God as the judge. The ancients usually did. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. Man is now the judge. God is in the dock. In other words, God is the criminal on trial. Man is quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, man is ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. What he's getting at is that is a warped view. That is a view of pride and arrogance that we must shun at every opportunity. God is the judge of the universe. And our response of whether we believe in Jesus that who he says he is and what he said he did for us says more about us than it does about him. And when I read this, I think about his own parable that he would share later on. If you live in unbelief, you're building your house on the sand. You live in belief, you're building your house on the rock. So I want to ask us, in your mind, who's on trial? Is it you or is it Jesus? Maybe we need to do some course correction on that. Number four, following Jesus involves blessing and pain. Listen to what he says here. He goes on, he said, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against. We'll stop there. You, you guys know all the verbal assaults hurled at Jesus, the physical assaults hurled at him, the, the whippings and the crucifixion. We know that. So that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. 
There it goes back to the one, we're on trial idea again. It's our hearts that are going to be revealed based on how we respond to this Jesus. But it wasn't just Jesus who would suffer. Listen to these words to Mary. And a sword will pierce your own soul too. The word for sword there is that of a long skinny javelin. The picture is that javelin being pushed into the soul of Mary. And you know the suffering that she took because of the, the claims of illegitimacy around his birth throughout her life. Can you imagine watching your son die on a Roman cross? That little baby you once held in your arms. Blessed am I among women. There was a blessing, but there's also pain. And I think more and more as we go further into history and we watch world events, we need to be realistic about our faith. We can't buy this pie-in-the-sky stuff that many preachers have tried to sell us for so long. That following Jesus is all about my comfort, what I want, making my life better. Following Jesus is ultimately about His glory and putting Him above all else, even at the cost of suffering and death. Verbal assaults, physical assaults. He said, if any man will not take up his cross and follow me, he cannot be my disciple. And I was Sherilyn with, Sherilyn, I was Sherilyn with Carolyn this week. (laughs) My goodness. (laughs) I was sharing with Carolyn this week. I don't know where all these recent headlines are going, uh, but more than ever in my life, as I read the news, I find myself wrestling with the, the question, am I ready to live well for Jesus in the face of persecution? Is my faith real? Or is it just something flowery that's going to fade away when life gets hard? Am I ready to not only live well for him, but also die well for him if it comes to that moment? Whether it's 85 years old in my sleep or suddenly from a disease or some other persecution, am I ready? And I think God's church needs to be asking those questions. Jesus' disciples need to be wrestling with that. Do we believe this? Or have we bought into the flowery lies about following Jesus? Are we willing to embrace not only the blessing, but the suffering for him as well? Key question for his children. Last point I want to look at in their response. In this life, people of faith are always looking forward. They're always looking forward. Listen to this passage about Anna. There's also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all, listen to this, who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. She walks in after these years of worshiping and fasting and praying at the temple, and she overhears Simeon singing this song, I think. And she comes over and realizes he's here, and it says she went on to tell others who were looking forward to this redemption. She was looking forward. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. Now, with her looking forward, and Simeon's and others in Israel, I want to 
drive this home today with this idea, idea. They were looking forward to his first coming. And they got to witness it this day. We're waiting for consolation now. For us, it ultimately comes in his second coming. We want to put ourselves in their shoes as we wait for the second coming and ask ourselves, are we looking forward to that actively, hoping for that? And is that shaping our ability to live faithfully and joyfully for him regardless of what happens around us? Listen to what 2 Timothy 4.8 says, There is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Paul is saying there's a crown. If you live your life looking anxiously, anticipating that day when he'll come back, there's a crown for you. Live that way. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 says, The Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. If we're going to live with joy and power and effectiveness as witnesses for Jesus, we have to not only believe this, but constantly encourage each other. He is coming back. He's coming back. Don't give up. This leaves us with the big question, what do we do while we wait for that second coming? What do we do? And that's what the books of Thessalonians, first and second, these letters to that church were all about. That church, some people started spreading a lie that Jesus had already come back and he missed some people who had already died. And so they were getting discouraged. They were getting disillusioned. So Paul wrote to comfort them that it had not yet happened. There were certain things that would have to be fulfilled first. But what I want to focus on is he goes on to tell them, hey, as you wait, here's how you live in the meantime. Because as as we think about prophecy and as we think about Jesus coming back, there's a lot of roads we can go down and a lot of them are good. One of the ones we often miss is what do we do in light of that truth? How do we live now in light of prophecy? And that's what the last part of 2 Thessalonians is all about. Carolyn was having her quiet time there this week, spoke some words of it to me on Thursday, and I just want to share them because they're so applicable. These verses that I'm going to share, I'm not going to read the whole passage, come from 2 Thessalonians 2.15 to 3.16. He's telling this church, this is how you live in light of Christ's coming. It's going to get worse before it gets better, but this is how you live in light of his coming. The first point I want to say is read. Be encouraged by the truth of God's word. As we get closer to Jesus coming, more than ever, we're going to have to be people of the book. Listen to what he says in chapter 2, verse 15 of 2 Thessalonians. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope. Encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. How does God primarily encourage our hearts? By holding fast to the teachings. Where do we have the teachings? They're right here. You want strength for every good deed and word. We've got to be people who read and are encouraged by the truth of God's word. 
Second, we've got to be people who pray. People who pray like our lives depend on it, because they do. He's going to tell us to pray for the gospel to spread and protection from evil. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored, just as it was with you. Pray that God's message would spread in your neighborhood and around the world, in your workplace. And pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil people. For not everyone has faith, but the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. Read. Pray. The third one is work. In the power of the Spirit, but work. Continue making disciples and in the work that God has put before you. If you're a physical therapist, keep working hard at being a physical therapist. If you're a teacher, keep working hard and bringing glory to God in your work. Whatever you do, and continue to make disciples. Listen to this. He's writing this because a lot of people were getting ready for Jesus to come back or wondered when it was going to happen. Some of them thought it already happened. Some of them were wondering if it was going to be soon. And some of them started to quit everything in their lives. He's saying, don't, don't, don't do that. He says, verse 4 through 6 in, in uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, we have confidence in the Lord that you are doing and will continue to do the things we command. Keep making disciples, telling people about Jesus. May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. Listen to this. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. There are some of them that were quitting everything in their lives and just becoming busybodies and causing trouble. He said, don't do that. Don't be idle. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They're not busy. They're busybodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. Keep on working for God's glory. Keep on making disciples. And as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. Read, pray, work. Last and most important, trust. Trust. Find peace in the Lord's presence. 316, now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with all of you. So as we wait for the consolation of Jesus' second return, this is how Paul tells us to live. I want to ask you, are you looking forward to that consolation? And is that the source of your strength today, if you're a follower of Jesus? Maybe you're here and you haven't met this consolation of Israel, this Savior that came for you. Could today be the day where you say, I'm going to stop looking for comfort in things of this world? Listen to the kind of hope we're talking about. Isaiah 28, 16. Jesus is the stone here. He's the foundation. This is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. That's Jesus. The sure foundation. Listen to this. The one who relies on it will never be struck with panic. Would you like to live a life that's never struck or torn apart by panic? Jesus is that only sure foundation. Not saying there's not going to be tears. Not saying there's not going to be trials, heartache, 
broken hearts. But underneath it all, there can be this peace. One more passage, Psalm 125, 1 and 2. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken, but endures forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people, both now and forevermore. Is that where you're looking for your consolation? Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you so much for Simeon and Anna hanging out at the temple. We don't know what all the people around them thought. Maybe some people thought they were a little kooky spending all their time there. I don't know. But they had their eyes on something bigger than what those people around them thought. They were looking for Jesus. And it filled them with great joy when they got to see that little baby, the salvation of the world. And Father, that first coming offers us hope as we walk in the darkness today. But we also look forward to the ultimate hope and the ultimate consolation when he comes back, not as a baby, but as a king to set all things right. Father, we look forward to that day and I pray for each one in this room. Those in this room that have trusted in Jesus, looked at what he did on the cross and embraced it for themselves. I believe in him. I'm not trusting in anything of my own anymore. I'm trusting in him. For those in this room who have done that, Lord, would you encourage us with this? We need it in an uncertain world. If there's anyone here who has never made that decision, I offer it to you today. God offers it to you. One of the simplest verses in the Bible says it so powerfully, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Would you turn from whatever you're relying on this morning and give your life to Jesus? Receive his forgiveness. He's done it. He's paid for your sin. He longs to live in you through his Holy Spirit and bring you that comfort. Just tell him. And if you do, I'd love to talk with you. If you have questions, I'd love to talk with you. Father, help us as your children to live with the peace that we've read about today in those last passages. If we're just as panicked and freaked out as everybody else, nobody's going to want to know more about you. But if they see something deeper, not because of us, but because of you, we'll we'll have something to share. Help us to live in your consolation. In Jesus' name, amen.